Brothers and sisters, we turn today to Lord's Day 25 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which constitutes question and answers 65 through 68. Let's read these responsively. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, He might make us understand more clearly the promise of the Gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. Brothers and sisters, I trust now we've heard a sufficient amount of God's Word. We've heard it summarized in in the Catechism. Let's turn now to the Holy Spirit and ask Him for help as He teaches us the doctrines of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we ask You to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of Your Son, whom You have appointed our Mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, these last several weeks, with the guidance of the Catechism, we've seen how faith is God's gift to us. It is the instrument that we use to embrace Jesus Christ and His righteousness. You have no other faculty, no other instrument given to you that you can do this with. But it is by faith alone that we are justified and considered in God's sight to be righteous and in conformity with His law. Perfectly in conformity with His law. Not because you have performed the law perfectly, but because Christ has, and that righteous status is credited to you, given to you as a gift, by faith alone. Well, okay. Where does that faith then come from? If you need faith as the instrument to receive Jesus Christ and his righteous status, 
Where does the faith come from? Is it something that we stir up, we create? Is there some special religious act that we need to perform in order to get it? How do we get faith? The teaching of Scripture is that the ordinary way that God creates faith is through gospel preaching. And he confirms and strengthens that faith through the sacraments. Faith is created by the word and it is confirmed and strengthened through the use of the holy sacraments. Let's spend our time looking at this, how God creates this faith. And then we're going to see how he strengthens this faith through sacraments. So first, the spirit creates and confirms faith. Um, I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. There are some outside of our tradition who look to our catechism and say, you've got only one question about the Holy Spirit. Question 53. So you guys don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You barely talk about him. You don't actually, uh, you don't actually rely on his, his work, his power, anything like that. That is not the case. The Holy Spirit may have one question dedicated to him. But he is all over the catechism teaching us that nothing in our life is possible, let alone our worship or the use of the sacraments, without him. Nothing is possible apart from the Spirit. And we see him show up again when the catechism teaches us that it is the particular ministry of the Holy Spirit to create faith in those who do not have it yet. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. For this particular point about the creation of faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says in verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, that's his banner statement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we take this to mean, of course, a sincere calling upon the Lord. Not just with the lips, but with the heart. Verse 14. Follow Paul's logic, okay? Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Where does faith come from? Paul's inescapable logic is that faith comes from the gospel. Faith is generated in the hearts of those who do not yet have it when the Holy Spirit takes the word concerning Jesus Christ and his person and his work and he uses that, if we can call it this, that raw material and he creates faith in your hearts. In order for us to believe savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God must come to you and tell you about him. And tell you that he is the son of God who's come down to save us. That he's laid down his life for sinners. That he's obeyed the law of God perfectly. That he has died and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand. And he's coming again. And when we hear this, 
the Holy Spirit, just as he hovered over the waters of the deep in creation, he now hovers over your heart and creates faith. And where there had been disorder and a barren wasteland in your heart, he now says, let there be light. And he puts faith in your heart. It is the work of the grace of the Holy Spirit using the gospel to create faith. But our faith is so often very weak. It is very weak. It was hard enough for the disciples to have faith in Christ. And they saw him face to face. They spent a lot of time with him. They were there as the message of the gospel was unfolding before their very eyes. But Jesus is not with us here bodily. He is in heaven. And so while the the Spirit works faith by the gospel, God has also given us, in his grace, sacraments, which the Holy Spirit uses to confirm us in our faith. What's a sacrament, and what is it good for? Like many words that the church has used now for 2,000 years, the word sacrament is not in the Bible. One of the church fathers named Jerome was commissioned to make an official translation of the Bible into Latin. So it was not written originally in Latin. Jerome translated it into Latin, and that translation was highly regarded for for, uh, many, many, about a thousand years. As the official uh, Bible eventually became kind of the official Bible of the churches of the West. Wherever Jerome saw the Greek word for mystery. So we see that word several times in the New Testament. Wherever Jerome saw the Greek word for mystery, he translated it as sacramentum. Which is a sacrament. The word sacrament. Both of these words, whether we're talking about a mystery or a sacrament, both of these words refer to the secret, holy things of God. Particularly if a ritual has been tied to those secret and holy things. Now, you know, it's, we, can have, we are free to have our own opinions about Jerome's translation techniques. Okay, that's up to you. The point is that that's the word that he used, and it's a perfectly fine word. And the church has clung to that word. There are other ways that the word gets used in history, uh, inside and outside of the church, inside and outside of the translation of the Bible. But I think this is the most important way that it, it, it comes to be used as we're thinking about this topic of the sacraments. Christians saw the word sacrament as helpfully naming particular rituals that are in the Bible. And so we have kept it, we use it, And we are not ashamed of it. Now let's see how sacraments, the biblical sacraments, are used to confirm us in our faith. Secondly, this evening, as we focus on sacraments, we see that first they are signs. We're focusing on sacraments as signs. Question and answer 66 of the Catechism tells us that they are visible, holy signs and seals. They're given by God. These are not man-made, but they have been given by God, instituted by God, to make the gospel message even clearer to us. Now, it is important for us to recognize the obvious, that they are visible. 
That's a grace from the Lord. That he's, He has made His gospel promise visible to us. While we hear the word, the holy symbols of the sacraments appeal to all our other senses. They are sermons for our eyes, our noses, our mouths, and our hands, making God's grace visible to us. His favor. That's what grace is. It's the favor of God. We're not talking about magic or, or as the medieval church talked about it, medicine. We're not talking about grace as a medicine that if you just take your medicine in the Eucharist, then you've got the grace of God. We're not talking about it like that. We're saying that God communicates his grace and his favor visibly to us in these holy signs. And God has appointed these in both the Old and the New Testament. So holy signs and seals are found in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, to understand why we call them holy signs and seals, we look to Genesis 17 and Romans 4, both of which we read earlier. Genesis 17, God restates his covenant of grace with Abraham. And I'm summarizing here, but this is the, this is the consistent promise that we hear God saying, I will be God to you and your offspring, You will be my people. That is the core promise of the covenant of grace. Now, in Genesis 17, he adds a symbol to this covenant. Verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So here's the order. Promise. Covenant. Sign. God makes a promise. He ratifies, we may say, that, that, uh, that uh, promise with a formal covenant. And then he gives a sign to signify that covenant promise. That those who are involved with the promise and who are belonging to the covenant might be reminded and pointed to the substance of that covenant. Now then, Paul takes this moment in Genesis 17 to be a very important moment in the grand story of God. Uh, if, you, if you've turned back to Genesis or you're still in Romans 10, turn with me back to Romans 4. Because Paul now interprets this story with Abraham. He interprets this for us. Romans chapter 4, beginning in the middle of verse 9. Paul says, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, we're all good on this so far. We spent a couple of weeks learning about this. Faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul wants us to be clear, absolutely, that righteousness comes to us in no other way than by faith, not by works. And so he points out in verse 10 that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Paul's point is that his circumcision had nothing to do with his this becoming declared righteous in God's sight. It's not by works. It's by faith alone. Okay, so he was not justified by circumcision or any other work. He was justified by faith. That's clear. But don't miss what Paul calls circumcision. Verse 11. Paul says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
So we're not talking about mere symbology here. These are not thin symbols, take it or leave it. These are symbols that are divinely instituted to point us to righteousness, to the righteousness of faith. Abraham was already declared righteous before he received this circumcision, and yet this sign was given to him sacramentally to point him back to what he had believed, to point him back to the faithful God in whom he had believed. It was a sign and a seal. Now, a sign is something, as the name implies, that signifies something. We use the word in our day in similar ways. If you see a red octagon... That signifies the command to stop. It's a sign. It's pointing you into to recognize and to do something else. Sacraments are signs because they signify God's gospel promises in the covenant of grace. They signify to us Christ and all his benefits. That is what the sacraments point to. They are visible signs of an invisible grace, of multiple graces, if we can speak of it this way. Like, for instance, the grace of righteousness, as we saw in Romans 4.11. The forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26.28 and Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The grace of renewal and regeneration, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. The grace of the covenant, Genesis 17, verse 11. And the grace that is found in Jesus Christ himself, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25. All of these texts are sacramental passages. They're, they're, they're telling us something about the use of the sacraments in both the Old and the New Testament. And what these signs, these holy signs point to are Jesus Christ and all that he has to offer us. In the gospel. There are many covenants in the Bible. Each one comes with promises and signs. And the signs of the new covenant are baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate these sacraments, Christ is offered to us. Not magically, but sacramentally. That we would come with faith in Christ and through him receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. They are signs that confirm us in faith. That's the sacraments as signs. Lastly, this evening, we learn about the sacraments as seals. Seals. As we've already seen in Romans 4.11, Paul also says that Abram's circumcision was a seal of righteousness. A seal of righteousness. In ancient times, if a king wrote a decree down then he would authenticate that decree on you know, the parchment or the papyrus paper, whatever it is that he's writing, writing on. He would authenticate it by having it folded up, and he would stamp his royal signet ring into it with the use of a wax seal. So you pour hot wax on it, and before it dries, you stamp your seal into it, and the king is now authenticated and confirmed this to be real. And this seal assured everyone that received it that the decree was truly from the king and that it was authentic. And that is the purpose of sacraments. That is the analogy that we are to bring to the sacraments. 
Abraham, in Genesis 17, had already heard the word of God. He'd already believed those words from God because the Spirit had worked faith in his heart. He had already been justified. But Paul says that his circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. As a sign, this ritual of circumcision proclaimed righteousness to him. It's a sermon being preached to him of the righteousness being offered to him through the grace of God. As a seal, it authenticated that righteousness to him. It was to confirm his faith, always to remind him of the gracious covenant that God had made with him. That's the point. That's the point. And that is how the sacraments of the new covenant work for us. Brothers and sisters, when we gather for worship, the word is used to set aside and to consecrate bread and wine and water, which is otherwise ordinary bread, wine, and water. And as we'll learn in the weeks to come, nothing magic is happening. There's no transformation happening to that bread, wine, and water. And yet God, through the power of his word and his spirit, sets these signs aside, these elements aside, for a holy purpose, a mysterious purpose. And when the Spirit does this, they become to us the means of grace. They, as the Catechism teaches us, they focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whether we are hearing the Word or celebrating the sacraments, let these things fix your heart upon the Savior. They deliver Christ to you for your saving help, to give you strength, to help you in your weakness, and to set your hope on Christ until he returns. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, with our Lord Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And we pray, Father, that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. Assist us in meditating with joy on your mighty acts. Enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Kindle in our hearts a love of your truth. Nourish us with the full counsel of the word of God. Enable us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And defend us from the sins of heresy and schism. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us, by your great blessing, may it be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and our lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.